Hey, Midgardians, I'm Clay. And I'm Joe. Welcome to That Midgard Show. This is a podcast where we discuss the Midgard campaign setting published by our friends at Cobalt Press. Yep. And in this episode, we continue our series on the locations and lore found in Empire of the Ghouls and wrap up the Blood Marriage chapter. And because there's so much to this campaign, we will discuss each chapter over many episodes in our Empire of the Ghouls series. We'll do our best to avoid spoilers by focusing on lore, locations, and notable NPCs. And if we feel like we're treading into a spoiler land, we'll let you know. We also ask that if you enjoy what we're doing on that Midgard show, please give our episodes a thumbs up and a subscribe to the channel on YouTube. Uh, please also rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. Doing so really helps others find the show. So our heroes are on their way to the Midnight Temple, located amidst the ruins of Nordheim. Uh, that is the first of the fallen dwarven holds. Upon arriving at Nordheim, they must find their way through the walking dwarven corpses blocking the subterranean city entrance. And these undead citizens of Nordheim were cursed with undeath and have been wandering the woods, unable to escape the remnants of the terrible curse that destroyed the dwarf hold and its people. Our heroes then proceed to the Midnight Temple, once a temple of Sif, but restored as a place of worship for Chernobog. Here they must interrupt the ceremony, facing down a Derekol priest, his vampire bride, the priest of Chernobog, who is officiating the ceremony, and a host of undead. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, Chernobog is an interesting part of this adventure, right? Because yeah. the Lord describes him as a terrifying being who embodies all mortal fears. His appearance is ever-changing and always horrifying, but he is most commonly depicted as an enormous black bear with horns and eyes that glow like coals. His fur is said to be matted with blood and ichor. Chernobyl controls the dead, not through respect, but through compulsion. Entire graveyards are said to rise up at his call. He is widely feared for his insatiable hunger and immense strength. And even Marvos, a powerful entity in his own right, is said to fear a confrontation with Chernobog. All of these things are what the, the priests of Chernobog say about him. Now, according to the lore, when Chernobog is present on the earth during the dark of the moon or an eclipse, the winds begin to howl, animals become skittish, and even dogs bite. Ghosts rise from every grave, and all manner of foul deeds are attributed to him. Chernobog is worshipped by a group of corrupt and wicked individuals, including witches, sorcerers, and wizards, as well as those who seek power, revenge, or wealth, such as thieves, murderers, and bandits. Chernobog is typically followed by hags, trolls, ogres, dragons, and goblins who commit murder in his name. Some people believe that Baba Yaga is secretly the greatest follower of Chernobog, while others claim that the two are rivals or former lovers. Chernobog is worshipped in various places. The Black Spire, located in the hidden gnome city of Konigsham, stands tall as one of, of his uh, places of worship. A small shrine dedicated to him can also be found in the King's Palace in Morgau, known as the Hidden Shrine of the Black Hand. Xanthus, the Flenser, keeps his altar stained with blood and provides his services to those who require spies, assassins, and thieves. However, most of Chernobog's temples are hidden, and those who visit them risk having their heads hammered in on the altar of sacrifice. But before we get more into Nordheim, we need to go deeper into the Wolfheim than we did in the previous episodes. 
At one time, the North was the hub of culture and wisdom. It boasted the Rainbow Bridge, known as Bifrost, which served as the road to the God's Hall of Valhalla, the battlegrounds of the Plain of Spears, the Storm Court of Perun, and other magical realms with strong warriors. However, the elves stole those gateways and relocated them. Some believe that Bifrost initially opened on Valara, or nearby, but it eventually shut down. And despite this, the Norse's greatness remained because of its people's strength and honesty, so the lore goes. However, many of its kings and cities have long since disappeared, including the famous Arvang and Isidin, uh, and, of course, Nordheim. So we'll start with uh, Arvang, previously a dwarf hold renowned for its deep ring magic and a place of pilgrimage. It was home to the Eye of Wotan and the holy shield of the dwarf maiden Gravar. As a kingdom, Arvang was known for its hardworking people, its strength in battle, and a ruthless streak in business dealings. The last king of Arvang, Regni Othason, attempted to strike a deal with a fire dragon, but the dragon incinerated him along with his two brothers and a group of guards. According to the lore, they apparently failed in their proposition of an offer that the dragon found insulting. So right there, there's a great example of aggressive negotiation. <laughs> so today, various fiery wormlings and Lindorms still hunt reindeer, elk, and humans in the River Valley, and no settlement has thrived in the area since the Dwarven era. However, rumors about an intact treasure hall uh, behind a stony door still circulate. So in Dungeons & Dragons, a Lindhorn is an ancient, evil, and cruel cousin of the dragon. And Lindhorns lack wings and hind legs, making them more serpentine than true dragons. And they are sometimes called Norse dragons. Yeah, now, centuries ago, the dwarves of Arvang and Nordheim allied with humans of Isidon and the Trollheim warriors, along with powerful wizards from the polar realm of Hyperborea. Together, they were known as the Vanguard Kingdoms. Their most incredible creation was the Wall, a line of fortified bulwarks that blocked the passes from the bleak expanse. The wall was strengthened by Hyperborean magic and dwarven stonemasonry, which kept Borea's storm spirit winds, called Tolili and ice elementals, at bay and protected the world from Borea's rage. However, Borea's eventually unleashed a new weapon on the north, living glaciers, which destroyed Arvang and Isidon and crushed the alliance that defended it. The wall collapsed in many places, but the stones and sorcery of the falling wall still hold against the onslaught of Boris. But the glaciers topple another section every year. Despite the destruction, the undead remnants of Isidon's defenders, such as Ghost and Vatir, still hold their ground in defiance of the North Wind. A cabal of liches commands the defenders in an eternal war, and they do not tolerate interference or suggestions that their troops should move on to their rightful rest. Tulili and ice golems roamed the glacial plain over Isidon, but many of the city's dwarven-crafted halls still stand beneath the ice. Broken crenellations of once mighty towers stretch toward the surface, some providing access to adventurers armed with ice-breaking spells. The survivors of Isidon's fall turn to cannibalism and inbreeding, and the results now scramble through the Isidon tunnels as ghoulish darrow. They scavenge the sunken city in search of treasures, although they hardly know their value. 
Each Izzadon lair is filled with the Doro's junk and salvaged artifacts, which they constantly steal from each other. Only the premise of fresh meat distracts them from the lore of Izzadon's ancient relics. An Isidonian tower completely buried in glacial ice has been exposed along the shores of Trollheim. What lies within the frozen rune, and which of the young Jarls might use it remains to be seen. I have to say, winter is coming, you know, with that wall, huh? Yeah, well, the wall, the, the, the burning of the dragons. I mean, I don't want to say which came first, because Midgard's been around for a while, and maybe there's no oh, influence yeah. there. Yeah, I definitely get in the, the vibes of the North, for sure. That lore has been existed in mythology for a long time, you know, yeah. wall and cold weather and stuff like that. So, But yeah, I mean, when I was reading that uh, in, in preparation for the show, it was like, oh my God, is this Game of Thrones? No. Can't. Yeah, yeah, I got the same vibe, man, for sure. <laughs> yeah. For sure. We got trolls instead of direwolves, although there's probably yeah. direwolves. So you talked about Boreas, and he played a part in the destruction of the Northern Kingdoms. And we should talk about him because there's an interesting twist. So remember how we mentioned that our heroes will encounter a priest of Chernobog? According to the lore, some believe Boreas is an evil mask of Chernobog, or at least on reasonably good terms with him. So here's, here's where I have to go... <laughs> Boreas is the bringer of storms and the killing cold and causes autumn storms and winter gales, as well as the biting wind carrying sleet, hail, and snow. Essentially, it's outside my window. So as the son of... <laughs> Let me start that again. Sorry. <laughs> it's outside my window. It is outside. I'll mention that again. <laughs> okay. So Boreas is the bringer of storms and killing cold, and causes autumn storms and winter gales, as well as the biting wind carrying sleet, hail, and snow, which is essentially at my window right now. So, <laughs> so he's the son of Marina, and we've talked about Marina as the uh, patron goddess of the vampire kingdom. And so he believes it is his duty to deliver his mother's killing cold to the world. And it's a job he takes very seriously. So Boreas aims to cover all of Midgard with an internal winter, and prophecies foretell that he'll one day succeed. He works tirelessly to ensure that his day of victory comes soon. And from the highest mountain in the north, he brews storms and dispatches giants, Tulili, Yeti, and other minions southward. He sometimes is worshipped as the mere herald of Marina, and much to his chagrin. Now, Boreas resembles a muscular-winged old man with shaggy hair and a wild beard, a crackling lunatic plagued by lust, paranoia, and rage. He enjoys shape-shifting, sometimes appearing as a living storm or a massive white stallion, dragon, or hawk, and occasionally in more seductive forms. In horse form, he impregnates the free Roman mares of the steppes producing the winterborn, as well as the Kazakh ponies both among the strongest, fastest, and toughest horses. Boreas also claims to be the grandfather of all winter wolves and other snow beasts. True or not, Northlanders curse his name as the progenitor of all manner of evil. So we have this pantheonic triangle between Marina, who is worshipped by vampires, Chernobog, the wedding is being held to strengthen ties with Marina, and Boreas, who 
potentially could be Chernobyl himself. So here again. So I may be making more out of this than what is intended by the author, but it's something that a GM can use to impede the PC's journey uh, to the ruins. Say the temperature of the forest suddenly drops so fast that massive spikes of hoarfrost block your path and potentially uh, impales you, not to mention incurring exhaustion due to the cold. So just a thought. Yeah, I kind of uh, that almost gives me the vibes of the new Ghostbusters movie with the spikes coming out from the ocean. but. As far as Nordheim, right? So Nordheim was this prominent kingdom of dwarves, which was known for their raids. But it was the first of the three kingdoms to fall. The reason for its destruction remains a mystery. It wasn't conquered by an enemy force, nor did it succumb to any siege. Some believe that a darkness emerged from beneath and consumed the kingdom. Even today, the dwarves live with the shame of the loss of Nordheim. One theory suggests the hold was destroyed by Thor's decree. The dwarves of Nordheim were known for their bloody fever in pursuing slaughter, which reached a degree that even the warlike Thunder God was repulsed, and he took revenge upon them. Several years ago, a discovery was made that the nearby forest is teeming with walking dwarven corpses, as if the entire hold's population had become a creeping horde of restless undead. The undead's range coincides with Nordheim's underground borders, which stop at the river. This is also the boundary which the Valkyries are forbidden to cross. It is said that those who discover the undead dwarves also found a dwarven temple. Someone had dug down far enough to see and uncover it for whatever reason. Of the many potential causes of the fall of Nordheim, none have captured the popular imagination quite like that proposed by a group of scholars in Skeldholm. They believe that Nordheim Reavers took their holy fever for bloodshed too far, angering the Thunder God in their profane excess. Though the Skald's work is shared with other places of learning, one of their members who went to research further among the Catnal Dwarves has disappeared entirely. Several years ago, the animals of the forest surrounding the subterranean ruins of Nordheim fled south as if from a fire startling the thralls of the Wolfheim dwarves recently brought to the area. After much debate, the dwarves sent a band of moderately armed thralls north into the cold woods to investigate what drove the creatures out. The thralls discovered a pit that descended to a ruined dwarven temple. As they debated their next step, they became aware of the total silence of the forest and then the cause. The thralls were surrounded by a sizable force of walking dwarven corpses. The thralls beat a slow and wary retreat, but the dead dwarves simply followed, trailing the thralls to the forest edge. Hollow sockets in desiccated faces followed their movements, stalking in silence, but never closing the distance. When they arrived at the riverbank, the corpses advanced no further, but withdrew, fading back into the trees. The Skrowling tribes that pass through the region to trade also speak of ghost elves in remote places in the mountains where no elf should ever have been. There has yet to be any interaction with them. So that wraps up the locations and lore of the Blood Marriage Adventure. If we go into a bit more, we'll do a lot of spoiling. But the one spoiler I will mention is that this adventure provides our heroes another chance at acquiring the holy robes of Sister Adelaide. The artifact they saw in the previous adventure by the same name. Cool area. A lot that a GM and players can really sink their teeth into. A 
ancient city of Walking Dead, a big pit. It's a chance to get a little sandboxy, right? I mean, going down in those tunnels, going to the ancient city, going through one of those towers. There's just a lot of veering off you could do here and have some fun, for sure. Yeah, and there, there seems to be kind of a common thread with the abandoned dwarven cities. You know, they always usually end up as a hole in the ground, one being in the jungles of the Southlands. So um, very, very, very interesting. You know, I, I just I, I see so much of Lord of the Rings, the journey through the mines of Moria is really something this, this that feels, uh, that can be expanded. Worse, right. This feels a little more intense than the mines of Moria, though. I mean, the mines oh, of Moria yeah. had a bunch of goblins and, and the bell rock. Right. This is just hordes of undead and who knows what else like i don't know man like i i love the frozen adventure idea there's a lot you can do up here obviously we can throw some frost giants at the players we can do all sorts of stuff up north and if you wanted to have a little random encounter right like i when i do my random encounters i like to sometimes rather than just oh a frost giant comes along and you fight or bandits come along i'm like you find it like it's cold you're looking for a place to camp and you find it this small opening that seems to be, you know, some kind of rune and you go in and it opens up and maybe it's just a portion, a small section of the ancient city. And you can come up with a small map, five room dungeon kind of deal that you could do down in there as your kind of random encounter for the day. And it can be a little mini adventure, just tons and tons of potential in an area like this. Yeah. When I ran this campaign, I, I, we got in, we got out, we were right back at Jost and we didn't spend a lot of time here. And if I ever run uh, this again, th there's going to be a lot more to this particular chapter. I mean, there's going to be a lot of exploration and uh, encounters in Nordheim. I feel the need to take uh, characters to uh, the wall, you know, the remnants of the yeah. wall to have them explore there. Definitely a lot you can play around with the essentially the Walking Dead of Nordheim uh, mm -hmm. as well. So. Oh gosh, yeah. I, I just in just talking about this, I have like three adventure ideas that I think I'm gonna have to flush out. I, I'm I, really excited about tower. this. What was yeah. that tower? We mentioned that tower on the edge of Trollheim, right? Like that's yeah. exposed now. Yeah. Heck yeah, yeah I want to do that. So a lot of great stuff here. So that is pretty much it for the locations and lore of the Blood Mares chapter in Empire of Ghouls, as our heroes eventually return to Jost. And I got to tell you, we, we, we've only scratched the surface on the Northlands. So yeah. in our next episode, we'll take a brief pause on Empire of the Ghouls to discuss the other areas of the Northlands that were not in the Blood Marriage before we move into the next chapter in the campaign, Catacombs of the Gull King. Now, that adventure takes our heroes back into the Shadow Realm to hop on a shadow road to the Southland city of Seawall to meet with the Gravebinders, who know very well how to deal with the dead. So now, Joe, my favorite part of the pod, the creature showcase. What do you have for us? Hmm. You know, I did some thinking on this one, and I wanted to do something a little different, a little fun. So let me set it up here. Picture this. There's a massive battle, and this battle has raged for hours, and you and your companions have led a special mission into the battle to rescue the general a woman and warrior of great renown who was taken prisoner by the undead. You fought your way through hordes of zombies, and ghouls, undead knights, and more, and you now stand at the threshold of the enemy's camp. Men and women fight all around you against a legion of undead, falling in the name of the living. 
The battle stands on a thread and can go either way. A sudden commotion comes from within the camp. You ready yourselves for the attack, but then you see a light. There she is. The general has broken free and fights her way out. She's outnumbered the battles with the skills of a veteran and the heart of a hero. The troops of the living see her and are inspired and rally. She strikes down enemy after enemy, but she's outnumbered and being overrun. You rush toward her to aid, but a spear pierces her body from behind. She turns to fight and a sword comes down on her. Then another and another. You try to reach her in time, but cannot. Your fellow troops look dismayed. Above, the ravens swarm, as if readying for their feast on the undead. But then they move closer and part. From within their ranks comes a woman, mounted atop a winged wolf, her golden hair framed by a winged helm and a sword held high, glowing with radiant light. She swoops down, letting out a battle cry. Your troops hearing her begin to rally and fight back the enemy. She strikes down the undead, releasing a bolt of radiant energy and slashing at them with her sword and spear. She lands near the body of the fallen general, and with a word, the general rises and begins to fight alongside the woman. The general's form begins to change as she lets out a glow of celestial light and continues to fight. In the end, the battle is won, and the general and the woman mount the flying wolf together and fly off. The troops let out a cheer and a salute to their general for the day is won. So, a little different, right? I didn't set you guys up for a fight here. Because what you witnessed here was a Valkyrie. Valkyries are sent by Odin, who is known as Votan in Midgard, to decide the course of battles and harvest the souls of brave and fallen warriors. They ride winged wolves instead of the flying horses or Pegasi mythology. They will surround themselves and remain hidden among the crows and ravens until fate decrees they act. Valkyries love battle and bloodshed, and their presence on the battlefield inspires warriors to great acts of valor and heroism. Most likely in your game, you won't fight against the Valkyrie, but instead alongside one or at least see one in battle. You will find them in both the original Tomo Beast and the Tomo Beast 2023, but I'm going to focus on the 2023 version as I kind of like it a little better. These are a CR-11 creature. Uh, they have immunity to non-magical physical attacks and poison. They also are resistant to acid, cold, fire, lightning, thunder damage. So they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty beefy. What they have, though, is they have this, this aura of valor, which grants friendly creatures wielding weapons within 30 feet advantage on their attack rolls and ability checks. Their weapons are also magical, dealing an extra 3d10 radiant damage. For attacks, they have both a longsword and a spear, and each hits for its weapon damage plus that additional radiant damage. And they can also cast a radiant bolt that deals like 40, 10 plus 4 damage, like 26. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so I mean, just hauling bolts, spearing stuff, slashing stuff. I mean, they're just a whirlwind of awesome power. Yeah. Uh, but, right, besides these attacks, the Valkyrie can use its gaze of doom to frighten a creature with a mere look. It requires a DC 16 wisdom save. On fail, the creatures are afraid and, and, you know, get the frightened condition will run away. Now, finally, they can also use a healing touch on creatures, healing them for about 66, and also freeze creatures from any curses, diseases, poisons, blindness, or deafness. So that's a, that's a beefy heal. But the big thing, the Valkyries have, have this one very unique ability, and we kind of saw this in my story. It's a reaction called Ascension, and when a friendly creature the Valkyrie can see within its aura of valor is reduced to zero hit points while engaged in a melee combat, 
the Valkyrie can reincarnate that creature as a gladiator. So if the gladiator reduces at least three creatures to zero uh, hit points within one minute of its reincarnation, it transforms into an Einhenhar, which is also in Tomo Beast. I think it's page 156. Then the Valkyrie can provide ascension to up to two creatures each hour with its reaction. So perhaps we can cover, you know, the the Einhenhar in, in the next episode or a future episode because it's a cool creature in its own right. But Valkyries are cool, man. Like you always hear Valkyries and lore. Um, you know, these women on on Pegasi or you know flying horses coming in, mm-hmm. all that stuff. But I feel like uh, Cobalt Press gave them just this really cool uh, feel in Tomo Beast. Not everything has to be a battle, like you mentioned. The climax of of the whole encounter, it could be that your hero doesn't know he's dead and he's been taken off the Valhalla or something like that. Yeah. The troops see it; they're cheering with with pride and, and that the, that their leader is is ascending, you know, to uh, a place of honor. I really like the idea of bringing these creatures into an, an encounter just to kind of flavor something and deal with a piece an npc that you may have or if right. one of your characters dies in battle they get whisked off by the valkyries and sent to valhalla and come back as something else you know so that, yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool i mean there might be an enemy on the battlefield that you're fighting that's just you have no chance to fight but you you also don't have a chance to run and the valkyries swoop in and, and aid you in battle you know something like that so yeah. A lot of cool stuff you can do with Valkyries, and they definitely have that, a lot of flavor, especially in the north in the Northlands, which is very Norse in feel to begin with. So I, yeah. I would like to see them used. I just just had a thought in uh, Sister Adeline's death. I wonder if she has been reincarnated as 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 something different and in, is right. roaming the earth. That'd be interesting. Yeah, because yeah. I think it was the Valkyries. I think that that came for her, right? Yeah. So, yeah, maybe. What do you got for us this week? So, yeah, Joe, I have, I have something really uh, cool uh, for today that kind of uh, ties into the ruins of Nordheim that uh, we talked about earlier. So let me set it up for you. As you step into the dense forest surrounding the ruins of Nordheim, a palpable sense of unease washes over you. The air is thick with an otherworldly stillness, broken only by the occasional mournful moans that echo through the twisted trees. The ground beneath your feet feels damp and uneven. The remnants of the ancient kingdom of Nordheim are hidden beneath the cover of decaying foliage. You're amongst towering trees that cast long shadows, concealing the horde of dwarven corpses that move with an eerie, synchronized determination. Restless and tormented, these undead dwarves climb over one another in a grotesque attempt to reach you. Hollow-eyed and desiccated, their faces bare the marks of a violent demise that befell Nordheim. And as you navigate the tangled pathways to evade the dead, the broken remnants of stone structures emerge from the undergrowth, remnants of a once great reaver kingdom. There's moss-covered walls and crumbling pillars. They stand silent witness to the mysterious calamity that claimed Nordheim. The air carries whispers of theories and legends, tales of the darkness that emerge from the earth, or the vengeful decree of Tor, disgusted by the excessive bloodshed of the Reaver Dwarves. As you move deeper into the desolate landscape, another encroaching horde of dwarf undead intensifies. As you move deeper into the desolate landscape, another encroaching horde of the dwarf dead intensifies. There are just too many, and they surround you. 
Nordheim awaits brave adventurers willing to confront the undead horde of Reaver Dwarves and unveil the truth hidden within the embrace of its ruins. So our heroes are encountering that massive swarm of undead dwarves called a Cursed Multitude, which essentially are the remnants of Nordheim's fallen population. Now, Nordheim was a very large uh, uh, population area, so there's a lot of these creatures. Our hero's presence in the area attracts hundreds, perhaps even thousands of walking dwarven corpses the longer they linger. And according to the lore, Joe mentioned this earlier, it is believed that Tor's decree destroyed Nordheim. As a result, he took vengeance upon them, wiping out the population and damning them to walk the earth as undead. Their souls neither went to Valhalla or the Eleven Hells. When travelers come across the undead dwarves in the forest near their abandoned city, the dwarves try to communicate and seek companionship with the living. However, the travelers often find it difficult to cope with the flood of memories from the dwarves' past lives, which can drive them out of the forest or even out of their minds. Additionally, the number of the undead bodies also pose a risk to the safety of, of the travelers. Now, this horde is unique to Nordheim and Empire of the Ghouls, but I think it can be adapted to any ruined city. All you need to do is adjust the backstory a smidge. While the CR-10 critter has the typical attack action of zombies, you know, bite, claw, slam, their most dangerous features are swarm and terrifying presence. This is where things can go bad for our heroes. Now, Swarm places this horde right on top of our heroes because they can occupy another creature's space and vice versa. Now, whenever a living creature starts its turn in the same space as the Cursed Multitude, it must, seed, it must succeed on a wisdom saving throw or become frightened by its terrifying presence feature. Now, remember, the frightened condition imposes disadvantage on ability checks and attack rolls while the source of its fear is within line of sight. The creature can't willingly move closer to the source of its fear. While Wisdom Save is modest, DC 15, that very first roll that you make, and, and if you fail, it could be really tough to get out of on future rolls because of the disadvantage check uh, imposed by the fear condition. Right. So our heroes don't have to run away. They can still attack at a disadvantage if they remain within the horde. But if they disengage, they are essentially out of the fight until they make a successful roll. And when they do, uh, they are immune to the terrifying presence for 24 hours. And again, you know, it's not a super high uh, roll. Now, when the Horde uses its action, they can make three melee attacks on each of their turns using any combination of Bite, Claw, and Slam. And on each of the Horde's turns, they can deal an average of 42 points of damage to the target when they are at full strength. And like any swarm, their damage is halved when they are below half of their HP. Now they are easy to hit with an AC of 12, but they have 133 hit points, which can top off at 210 if you want to fight them longer. They are resistant to necrotic and physical damage, you know, bludgeon, piercing, and slashing. And so your typical attacks by PCs may not be as effective initially. But a caster with a spell that can do radiant damage has an advantage due to the Cursed Multitude's vulnerability to that type of damage. Although I don't do this often enough, I utilize some of my preparation time to outline the creature's round-by-round -round fighting strategy, especially for spellcasting NBCs. This helps me make the most of the creature's full design. While this outline never survives contact with our heroes, it does provide enough information to pull from 
to fight that creature more effectively. And one of my weak points that I'm really trying to improve as a GM is really familiarizing myself with the uh, NPCs that I drop into in the encounter. Because if I don't fight them effectively, it's a quick encounter and it's not that fun for the player. So I try to script out the fight and spread it out a little more. You know, eventually, you know, the creature always loses or runs away, you know, for that matter. But for this creature, the Cursed Multitude, the aim is to maneuver the horde into the space of as many PCs as possible, then use terrifying presence to weaken as many of the PCs as possible. From there, the horde can attack the PCs with their melee attacks. And it's important to move your hordes in a way that includes casters who often leave a combat encounter without a scratch because they may have spells that deal radiant damage or they're always firing from range, typical of a spellcaster. So, right. Joe, how do, you, how do you think that is for a Midgard version of The Walking Dead? Like, when you think about zombies, you think about hordes of zombies. You think about The Walking Dead. That's one thing that was kind of bugged me a little bit about D&D zombies is, like, the bite doesn't transfer the, the zombie play kind of deal. But the feel of this encounter, these swarms of zombies just clawing at you and biting and, and slamming and all this stuff just surrounding you, it kind of gets the heart going, right? It's like you feel the fear. And I love that about this this encounter. I love that about this creature. I know uh, there's some homebrews for like minion type creatures. So you can smash mm. through a whole bunch of them. But this is a, a great creature build. And yeah, I agree with you. I mean, you, you change up a few things, throw this in any ruined city and just have a swarm of undead coming out. I absolutely yeah. love it. Such a uh, a creature can be used to kind of steer your uh, party in, in, in the direction you need them to go or uh, block their way to somewhere else. The heroes really shouldn't try to fight these because more and more are going to come and they're they're so outnumbered that uh, a tpk is is inevitable yeah yeah and you know you mentioned a really good point about spending a little time prepping to understand your your monster so that you can run it more effectively um and i know a lot of people already know the book but um the monsters know what they're doing and more monsters know what they're doing books uh by uh keith mon is a great resource for learning how to do that he goes through all the monster manual books and the Volo monsters and all those, but he also breaks down the process of how you, how you break down any monster and use this process to really understand your monsters more effectively. And I mean, I've learned how to take a group of goblins, uh, you know, of 10 goblins and just destroy a level four party with them. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, it, it can be done uh, and really understanding your monster, really utilizing their abilities and understanding how they think and what they want and what they're trying, what their motivations are and how they're going to act in combat. Um, ooh, it makes a difference. Yeah. I use that very book to uh, fight a Zorn, you know, one of those classic D and D characters that, that I've never run before. Yep. And, and the author pointed out some, incredible features that really can drive the uh, players nuts, you know, because the Zorn, you know, has the ability to kind of drop itself in the earth and then come back. And, right. And, and so, you know, when it turns over, it just kind of disappears in a dirt or a wall and something like that. And it's just like, where yeah. is he? I want to, I want to get my yeah, whack exactly. at him. Yeah. So and now everybody's just readying actions and taking a single attack rather than unloading all their abilities. Right, um, right. I used it too. I used that book for when I ran my uh, Astarac fight at the end of Tome of Annihilation for the full Lich fight, you know. Uh, and man, when I when I dropped that time stop, <laughs> hmm. 
Uh, so yeah, it's a great a great resource, and uh, I'm glad you brought up the fact that you know you you really prepped that that encounter, and it's something I think DMs need to 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 do a little more often on not maybe not every little fight, but especially the bigger fights. It helps it helps a lot, and really just makes for a more memorable encounter for your party. Yeah, too often I focus on the story and possible uh, branching points. That's important to do, but a GM has the responsibility to understand the characters they're playing as much as the player uh, is responsible for understanding their character. So, yeah. So, yeah, just 15 minutes is yep. all you need. And it's very helpful. I, I find it very helpful. Again, you, you never know how the fight is going to go. So, you can just use that as kind of a checklist. Oh, I can go to this next, or I can do this, or don't forget about this particular feature that the right. monster has. You know, re- really a good way to kind of uh, draw out the combat a little bit. For sure. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. Joe, how can people reach you? Well, as always, you can find me at GM Toolbox on YouTube and TikTok, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, I'm also on, I'm not going to call it X. It's, it's I'm on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> GM underscore toolbox. Sorry, I can't call it X. And of course, you can find me at the Midyard Adventures and Cobalt Press Discords at GM Toolbox there as well. How about you, Clay? Yep, same places, uh, but I uh, primarily uh, lurk on the uh, Midgard Adventures server and the Cobalt Press Discord server. And I'm at Clayton Thompson. That's all one word, and Thompson is spelled without a P. I do encourage you to check out the Midgard Adventures Discord server, and it's a fan-based cooperative group that is now run by Cobalt Press. And there, uh, everybody talks about Midgard lore. They share tips and tricks about the adventures. They answer questions. And that community is open to everyone, you know, particularly those new to Midgard and role-playing games. And you can hang out with other fans of Midgard in our Mead Hall or, or all the other channels that are available, particularly the adventure channels where a lot of the Cobalt uh, game designers and authors, they're there and they may answer a question that you uh, drop in there. We also have a dedicated channel for that Midgard show on the Midgard Adventures Discord server where you can post a comment and talk about the uh, content of the show. So check us out. We have an invitation link available in the show notes below. I know a few of our listeners have been saying hi to us on there, so definitely drop by and, and say hello. And if you like our show, please click on the like button, subscribe to our channel, and spread the word about that Midgard show. Uh, we're also on all the major podcast platforms, so please subscribe, leave us a positive comment, give us a five-star review, help us out. So that's it for today, everybody. And remember, as Wolf Gang Bar says, strip it for parts and make it your own. Thank you for joining us. Take care, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye.